there's a lot to know about credit and how it impacts your ability to do pretty much anything. Do you understand how credit really works? Come and check this out. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control of your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. We are bringing back physician mortgage expert, Doug Krause, who's willing to share some of the biggest secrets surrounding credit and mortgages. For those of you that might not remember, he is a credit and physician mortgage professional with a ton of years of experience who definitely understands the ins and outs of physicians and their unique mortgage needs. In this show, we're going to talk to him about the topic that usually gets everyone's attention, and that's credit. Opening up your credit report can be similar to opening up Pandora's box. You never know what's inside. Okay, I hope it's not like that, but we want you to come away with an understanding of what goes into your credit report and what can come out of it. One of the curious things that may show up in your credit report is a mistake. It can be a surprise if you don't know where it came from. What would you do if you found an error on your credit report? We're here to explain what those mistakes will mean as well. We're going to help you whip up your credit score into shape by discussing your credit score, credit repair, and pretty much everything in between. And I think we're really lucky to have Doug be a part of this community and let us pick his brain since I know I've seen a ton of questions in our community around this stuff. So enough for me. Let's go hang out with Doug. Doug, what's up, man? Thank you so much for being back on the show. Really excited to have you here. Great. Thanks for the invite. Of course. We normally talk about physician mortgages when we have you on, but this time we're going to talk about the other side and we're going to go into the credit scores and credit reports. We've been getting a lot of questions in the community around all these things as people are typically looking for loans, discovering what goes into these reports and how to actually navigate through if they see discrepancies and stuff. So I thought who better to have on than the expert himself. So to catch everyone up, why don't you give a good definition on what a credit report is and what's inside of one? Basically, a credit report is kind of like your report card on how you've managed your finances. There's companies like Experian, TransUnion, Equifax that get information reported to them by your mortgage lender, by your credit card companies, by your auto lender that says how timely you pay your payments and they kind of grade you based on that. If everything's paid on time, of course, you're going to have great credit. If you've got a slip up here and there, then that's how they tell the next lender, hey, this person mostly paid on time, but not quite. And that's how they make future credit decisions. Now that we kind of got that out of the way, and I think everyone can feel a little bit more comfortable, I want to dive into some specific questions that the community has given us here. And the first one, it kind of makes me chuckle because I almost feel like the answer is nothing, but I know that's truly not the case. What do the credit rating agencies actually do? They compile your propensity to pay your credit. So whenever they collect all this data from all the different agencies, it gives them a place to look at your grade for future ability to pay. So they're basically the monitor, so to speak, of your credit. So when somebody like me wants to check your credit to see what the likelihood you're going to pay us, we go to somebody that compiles and keeps this data for us. 
Yeah. Uh, besides letting people hack them and then giving out all of our information, <laughs> they do something at least somewhat useful in when lenders are trying to figure out, should they give you a loan or not? And I think, Doug, you can provide some cool insight on this. When you start working with someone, because you kind of know what the underwriters are really looking at. You've been doing this a long time. Not to age you, I didn't mean that. But you know what they're looking for. What are they actually looking for when you're pulling credit? Like, what's the top couple of things you're like, oh, okay, this is going to pass through underwriting pretty easily or not? Obviously, a high credit score is a good indicator that you're going to pay your bills, but you can have a high credit score and have very little history. So that's another important factor. Someone that's only ever had one car loan, but they happen to have a 780 credit score isn't necessarily looked at by underwriting the same as somebody that has a 750 credit score, but they've got a 20-year history. It's not an end-all just because you have the high credit score. They're also looking at how many other types of accounts and history and that you've actually paid some of them off. There's definitely more factors to it than simply the score itself. And do physicians typically have a higher credit score just inherently because of student debt, being able to take on so much and start that repayment history early in training? Most physicians have a solid credit history because they've got all those student loans, but actually the student loans typically are maxed out, so to speak. They haven't got to the point of paying them off yet, so they're not really being graded as much on the fact that they've paid on them for 10 years, but that they have a original loan balance of 250000 and they still owe 250000 So actually, their scores tend to be a little lower than somebody else that's the same type of profile borrower that's not a physician because they don't have debts that are still maxed out of what they started at. Their utilization is very high. If you borrow 200000 on student loans and you still owe 200000 as opposed to somebody that borrowed 30000 on a car, now they owe fifteen. they've actually got a history of paying down their debt. The doctors don't necessarily do whenever they're early on in their career. So they actually end up with a little bit lower scores than the average borrower with the same type of profile. That's fascinating. So I use Credit Karma and it's a simple dashboard. It allows me to see information pretty easily about the credit reports from TransUnion, Equifax. I know a little bit about if I see something inaccurate, what I can do, but what is your advice for anyone listening that might actually go, oh, wow, I should actually go check my credit. And they do that and they see, hey, there's some inaccurate or just incomplete information in the report. Everybody should be checking their credit. You can get a free copy of your credit report once a year from the bureaus. Sometimes there's just information that people are completely taken by surprise. The last thing you want to do is find that out right when you're ready to make a big purchase, such as a mortgage. Say, for instance, and this happens all the time, Ryan, you have people that have medical collections of stuff gets turned into insurance. They pay what they were supposed to, and then there's a $30 outstanding bill that you never received to pay. Next thing you know, you've got a $30 medical collection and those can just play havoc on your credit score. You absolutely should be taking advantage of your opportunity every year to pull credit. And if you find something, reach out to the creditor to see if it's maybe actually is an error and you can get it fixed. Or if it's not, sometimes they will negotiate of, hey, I just didn't know. I would have paid it if I did. I'm ready to pay it now. Can you make this go away? Because it was never my intention not to pay you. And Surprisingly, there's a lot of them, they just want paid. So if you pay them, they're willing to take off derogatory credit that technically is bad credit that you didn't pay the bill, but most people just didn't pay it because they didn't know they had it. 
You bring up an interesting question. So what kind of medical information can anyone, employers or insurers or creditors, find out about you through your credit report? Nothing specifically about medical other than there would be that occasion that you have a medical collection that would be an indication that you've been to a doctor and had a bill. But outside of that, there's no information on your credit report that is any type of detail about your personal well-being. It's strictly about your financial well-being. So other than the name of like, hey, I went to LASIK XYZ and I didn't pay them and now I've got some collection like they might know. But other than that, you really can't pull that much medical information or any really from it. Nobody should be able to find any type of information about medical records. Doug, I get this question kind of a lot and, and I see it in our community asked a few times. I think this is really specific to the person, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on this one is what is the ideal number of credit cards to actually carry? That's kind of a loaded question. So I know that's why I gave it to you. I personally have five. And to me, that's normally too many, but I have a specific credit card I carry because of the point factor I get on it that I don't want to give up. So that's my primary use credit card. But at the same time, I have another credit card I've had for 15 plus years. You don't want to get rid of a credit card like that because part of your score is based on the longevity of your credit too. So I would actually drop my credit score for getting rid of a credit card that I never use. And it's a specific credit card that I use to, we'll get into that probably later in the show, but I use this credit card to help build credit for both my kids, which is just an awesome feature that I want to elaborate on in a few minutes. Yeah. Well, well, let's just cut into it really quick. So I know from a personal story, my parents opened a credit card and I was actually in prep for the show pulled open my credit, was kind of walking through it. And it's got 34 years of history. That's remarkable considering that that's almost how old I am, which means they opened it, you know, as I was basically one, you know, I think that's interesting that I'm still on it. It still counts as history, even though I'm an authorized user, how are you building credit for your kids? Anybody out there that's got kids, do them a favor now on credit cards as they get to, let's say their early teens. I did this for both of my kids. I have an account that has a $40,000 credit limit that I never use. It's 15 plus years old. I put my kids on as authorized users, which many people in the industry are going to tell you that doesn't work anymore. But I know for a fact it does because I did this again a couple months ago for a friend of my son's. He practically grew up in our household anyway. He didn't have bad credit. He just had limited credit history. So my 13-year-old started out when we first checked his credit, had a 780 credit score. The only credit he had was an authorized user on this one account. So it definitely works. And not that he's going to use my credit card, but now whenever he goes out to apply for his own credit, he's viewed as, hey, this is a responsible borrower. When he applied for his own credit card, he got one from Capital One, his very first credit card with a $20,000 credit limit. Yeah, because there was already the history built there with it. And there's something called trade lines and how you can essentially even profit from this. And I I ran into some guys at FinCon that do this, and I'm trying to get them on the show because they actually figured out a way to like profit from this and you basically sell your, your trade line. But it's fascinating. Like that's what my parents did. They turned around and put us as authorized users, both my brother and I, and allowed us to still stay on the card. Now that card, literally my mom has had it for 34 years And I've never even seen the card. I don't even think it exists. I mean, it must exist somewhere, I guess. But I'm an authorized user and that's building up the credit amazingly. So I interrupted you though on the ideal number of credit cards. 
Again, I think three, that way you've got your primary card. And of course, in this day and age, it just seems like it happens once, if not twice a year to everybody that your credit card gets hacked. So you definitely don't want to have just your primary use card. You need a backup. So at point in time that your card gets hacked and you have to replace it to get a new credit card number, you're not left with no other credit. And then there's just certain credit cards that have features airline miles, or in my case, point rebates towards vehicle purchases on a GM card, whatever the case be, sometimes it makes sense to use one card, you know, if you go to Costco and get a gas discount, but otherwise use your primary card if you're going to accumulate cash rebates or whatever the case be. I think you need probably a couple different cards for the features and benefits you get from them. And then you need a backup card just in case one of your primary cards gets hacked and you are without it. You don't want to be stranded somewhere. And I don't think anybody carries cash anymore. Cash? What's that? Is that that thing I used really? to buy Bitcoin? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I have a, actually a good buddy of mine. He has 28 credit cards. Legit 28. That's definitely too many. Yeah. I'm all with you on the simplicity piece of like three, maybe four cards and have a very specific reason for those, whether it's really good points or longevity of the card. But then I go back to my buddy and I'm like, he has 28 cards. So when he opens a card or when he spends something on these cards, his utilization is crazy with $400,000 of credit available to him, but he only spends five or 10,000. Like that utilization is so small. Is that why his credit score is 800 plus? Does utilization get lumped together like that? No. And actually that's a misconception a lot of people have. It's actually on a per account basis. So for instance, that car loan that started out at $30,000, it's paid down to 20. That's going to have an impact. Credit cards work the same way. They're not cumulative. It's each credit card. So if you have three credit cards that each have a $10,000 limit and you have $7,000 on one of them and nothing on the other two, you've got two cards that are zero utilization, but you've got one that's a 70% utilization that would definitely harm your score. So Really what you're shooting for is to keep all of your utilization on individual accounts below 30%. It starts to hurt your credit score at 30. It's more significant at 50. And it's just a psycho killer when you get up into the 70 range. So that's actually something that most people do think. And that isn't actually how it works. It's definitely on an individual basis. Yeah. So, so probably your buddy's credit is as good as it is because to have that many credit cards, he probably has a long history and he's probably paid them on time. It's not the fact that he's low utilization. It's probably that he's got a 20 year history and paid everything, especially in the most recent couple of years, timely. Of course. So when I'm looking at this or thinking about this in terms of my friend, maybe he's using five credit cards and he's only putting a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars on each card when they've got $30,000 essentially limits, that makes his utilization on each card super low. So then collectively, his utilization is really low. He's got nothing that's spiked. Maybe that factors in? That probably does, as opposed to if he would have had 5,000 on one card with the 10,000 limit, then his utilization looks good on 27 cards, but not that one card. Mm -hmm. Again, somebody with 28 cards, that one card's not going to be as much impact as somebody that only had two cards it's still going to look like not managing money well whenever he's using more than half the credit laid out as available to him. Mm -hmm. In fact, this just came up on a mortgage for me a few months ago that somebody had $200,000 worth of open trade lines on credit cards. They only owed $10,000. So the total utilization is only 5%. But the underwriter looked at that and said, 
yeah, they have an 800 score, but this person overnight could get $200,000 in debt. So they actually didn't really like that, which we all know somebody with 800 score could go out and get 20 credit cards if they want them. Not necessarily the best thing to do because underwriters look at that as the what if. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. They, they always want to come from the risk of the bank side because this is really typical. New residents that are coming in just into training, actually starting to earn money, they might open a synchrony card to buy a mattress or new attendings are trying to get furniture at XYZ place and they open up a card. And synchrony is usually the bank that like funds all of those type of purchases. But synchrony opens it as a credit card. And then obviously you're taking out the purchase of a mattress at let's say $2,000. And that might be the limit that they gave you because that was what the purchase was. How does that affect your credit? Even if it's 0% interest and all that, how does that affect your credit? That plays into the fact that it looks overutilized. So you never want to open a new account, ask for $2,000. If it's going to be a revolving account, then try and keep it below 30%. So in that instance that somebody gave them $2,000, they could have just as easily said, hey, I don't want $2,000 because I understand how credit utilization looks on my credit scores. I want a $7,500 credit limit and then purchase $2,000. Now their utilization looks great. It's just a matter of asking. A lot of times they give you 2,000 credit because that's what you need. But in reality, you need more. Otherwise, it could impact credit scores. And I think that's really interesting because as you're going through and you're going to buy this mattress for $2,000, you're going to sleep really well. They're going to give you that. But if you would have said, hey, I want a little more, $6,000 of limit to buy this. That way it doesn't, or maybe 7000 to have some cushion. That way it doesn't penalize you too much. Even though the 0% and from a financial standpoint, you're like, okay, I've got 0%. I'll pay it off in a year because that's how long I have 0% for. Not accruing interest. It allows you to pay it over time. And ideally we don't want to do that. But I understand residency and you've got to be able to sleep and maybe you don't afford a $2,000 bed in residency, but you know, we could use this for any number of examples, Ikea and getting furniture, whatever it might be. Doug, I, I, we received a very specific question and I wanted to save this one for you. My ex-husband was supposed to pay off this account and he didn't and it damaged my score. Now, what do I do in order to repair or fix this? That comes up all the time in mortgages and... Sometimes it works out, you know, depending on the relationship, you can go back to them. And a lot of times it's overlooked whenever you're doing a mortgage. If the divorce decree states it's the ex-spouse's debt and they didn't pay it, that debt is overlooked in the form of not going to count that payment against you. But the damage is already done. Unless you can get the credit bureaus to walk that back and show that, hey, this was never supposed to be mine. In reality, whenever they made that loan to you, it was to both of you. So the fact that the divorce says you guys are no longer together doesn't tell the creditor that I can no longer collect the money from you. It's kind of a unfortunate circumstance for people when they get in a situation like that, that the spouse, you hopefully have something that both of you want that, you know, if you take some debt and they take some debt and your names are on both of them, it's also to their benefit to pay the bills that have your name on it. If you're also going to be paying bills that have their name on it. Mm -hmm. When it's a situation where one spouse took all of the debt or all of the joint debt, then you're kind of at their mercy and there's not really a lot you can do about it. So it's very important whenever you get put in those situations that you think about all of that ahead of time. That's where if you're dividing assets and there's money to pay off any of that joint credit that you're no longer going to have control of in the future, I would absolutely advise 
separating your finances to the point that you're not dependent on somebody else to do something that's going to affect your future. Yeah, you're not on the hook for their debts and what they do. I would especially separate auto coverage. So if they got into an accident, the liability doesn't extend over to you, even though you weren't driving the car, but you joint have auto policies. I've seen all sorts of things. We've got two more for you, Doug, on this one. I think this is always a fun one to ask because it's such a common misconception. What is the difference between a FICO score and a credit score? You know, that's actually the same thing. It's more or less a specific name that people have adopted to think of. FICO score is a name brand where credit score is accumulation of Experian, TransUnion, Equifax when you get that. FICO is a model of score, so it's kind of like comparing Kleenex and tissue or drywall and gypsum board. It's strictly an interchangeable term that people have gotten used to using the term FICO. Yeah, I always look at it as like you're going to copy paper or Xerox paper. Like, I'm going to go Xerox this. Uh, that's, and maybe that's an that's old school. exactly it. Okay, Doug, I want to leave with this last big one for everyone to kind of walk away. So now that we understand more about the credit and what underwriters are looking for and how to work your way around the credit report, if someone's sitting here and like, okay, that's all great, Doug. Thanks for the info. How can I use this info? How can someone listening boost their credit score right now, or at least take some action on that? First of all, never, ever close accounts whenever you're trying to boost your score. That's the first mistake everybody does. They think I'm going to clean up my credit, make my profile look nice and neat. And you take your friend that had 28 credit cards and you start closing off a bunch of cards and they make the mistake of, well, I never used this one. I never used that one. And they happen to be 20 year seasoned accounts. That's going to affect your score because now your credit longevity just got shortened. Another issue would be whenever you're looking at your complete profile, credit scores are based on how many different accounts you have too. So somebody that has three accounts and close one, they've reduced the amount to be graded on. So an ideal credit profile, in my opinion, and again, this is just my history in the business, would be five or six accounts. So having those three credit cards, if you have a mortgage, if you have student loans or a car loan, that is an ideal profile. If somebody's just got student loans, they're probably not going to have as good a score as somebody that has student loans and a car loan and credit cards because now they can look at you at more than just one avenue of how you pay your credit. A neat trick that we talked about earlier is piggybacking on somebody else's credit. If you haven't already done this for your kids, whenever they get to that age, I think that's great that you start them out with a immediate high FICO score that then they can go out and apply and build their own credit because they've already got good credit. Something that we were talking about earlier, the debt utilization has an impact on your credit. So the easy solution is pay your credit card debts down to where they're 30% utilized. If that's not as easy, then another secret that a lot of people don't really think about is go increase your credit line. That does the same thing. So let's take an example of somebody that has a $10,000 credit card and they owe $4,000 on it. If you paid that down below $3,000, your score is going to boost. But if you simply call the credit card company and ask them to increase your credit limit to $15,000, now, all of a sudden, your utilization ratio went down. So there you have essentially the same effect, but you didn't have to spend money to do it. And a disclaimer, please, if you have credit card debt, do not do this and then rack up more credit card debt. We're talking about ways to boost your yeah. score. And I think this is a really important point. 
we're talking about boosting your score. And then there's like the correct financial habits. And we don't want to mix the two, right? We're talking specifically credit report action items, not, hey, here's a way to go potentially spend more and get more credit card debt. And you bring up a good point there, Ryan, because back to your example of the mattress and 0% interest, sometimes saving money could cost you money. So while you're not paying any interest on that mattress to borrow to do that, if you did the example of borrowed 2000 and your limit was 2000 now your total FICO probably went down because your utilization is at 100%. When your score drops, everything else costs you more money. Now you're going to pay more for an interest on a car. Or you're going to pay more for interest on a mortgage or your insurance companies even charge you more based on the lower your score, the higher risk they consider you. That example of you trying to take a 0% interest credit card actually probably costs someone money in the long run if their score dropped enough because of it. And I think the other point to add in this, a little couple more disclaimers as we're going along, and Doug, I want you to chime in, but your score might drop if you cancel cards. And if you're the type of person that either you're overwhelmed by all the details and you have 10 cards and you've had credit card debt and you can't manage it and you're just having difficulty, I don't care what your credit score is. Let's get your finances in order. Let's tackle that first. So we might be canceling cards and yeah, that could inversely affect your credit score, but overall you're saving money you're doing something better. Your credit score will recover, especially if you have no use for credit. I mean, we don't want to get into a mix of crushing your credit score just to crush it. But if there's a reason and we can actually see impact for that, maybe you should do that. So we're not hitting all the bases here. We're really just talking about someone who has good health, credit health and maybe how to boost it or just to be more aware of what's in the credit report. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. You, you don't close credit accounts strictly for the basis of trying to clean up your credit, but at the same time, don't keep credit for a lifetime if you're never going to use it because you're just putting something else out there for somebody to hack and steal. Yeah. Well, Doug, thank you so much for being on. I know we've chatted with you before. We've featured you in a lot of different things here in the community because I absolutely love the work you're doing obviously special spot in my heart because you're married to a doctor as well, but you, you've done great stuff. I've used Doug personally for our home loans. Working with Doug's been amazing, but Doug, for those that somehow don't know who you are, maybe because they're just new to the community, tell them just a little bit about you, where they can hear or find more about you. I specialize in doing physician loans. You can find me online at drloanexpert.com. You can always reach out to me at 816-728-3631. Love to answer any questions for you. I've been doing this 20 plus years, so always happy to direct somebody in the right direction. If it's not somebody I can help, then I'll certainly find you somebody that can. Awesome. And you can always ping Doug in our community. He's very active and involved in answering questions, lots of questions, lots of answers. And I appreciate it, Doug, helping take care of all of us in the community, which if you haven't joined, you can do that at Financial Residency dot com slash community. Come join us and ask Doug a question there as well. So Doug, thanks again for being on. Really, really appreciate it. It's always fun to chat with you. All right. Thanks for having me back, Ryan. In our journal club, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site Millionaire Doc titled Overcoming Analysis Paralysis, A Physician's Perspective. In it, the author discusses despite medical training, which included making critical medical decisions, a physician can become paralyzed when faced with too many financially related choices. 
He tells a story about how terrifying it was for the first time he was on solo call at a level one trauma center in the county hospital. Now, that is a time when making decisions can be really scary, especially for me as an outsider. And I can't even think about that just being new and your decisions that have to be fast and accurate. He also told about his experiences in getting the quote unquote call of shame from his attending physician when the decisions he made may not have been, let's say, for the best. And the fear of that alone might cause some paralysis. I know it does for me just even reading it. And I quote, the same lessons can be applied to personal finance. We know what we ought to do, but faced with too much information and too many choices, it's easy to become paralyzed and do nothing. What I really like about this article is that it provides you with something that I really can't, and that is that it compares being a physician, all of you out there, and what you really know about, which is your training and overnight calls, to the paralysis behind personal finance. There is so much information out there, it becomes hard to make a choice. And while I know that I'm out there producing a lot of content that I hope is bringing all of you a lot of value, the last thing I want to do is to add to this analysis paralysis concept. A little quick disclaimer here, please reach out to me directly. Email me at ryan at financialresidency.com if you hear or read something that I have put out that doesn't quite make sense. I'm happy to clarify anything because if you have questions, it's highly likely that many others listening have those same questions. What I also like about this article is that it provided easy to read steps on how to combat your analysis paralysis. It states paralysis is not an option and don't get caught up in the minutia. In my experience, I see new attending physicians are faced with so many decisions in their career, with their personal lives that are just really coming off hold, and most of all their finances that it really have been in that holding pattern. So yeah, I think with all the decisions coming at all of you, it could be really easy to get trapped in that analysis paralysis. So Millionaire Doc, thanks for showing us how to do it. It was an excellent article, and I will link to this in the show notes at financialresidency.com. So I hope you guys all enjoyed the interview as well as our journal club. And I have five things for you to take away to improve your financial health. Number one, Doug explains what a credit report is and what it covers. He explains why your credit report is actually a report card for how you've managed your finances. Basically, a credit report is kind of like your report card on how you've managed your finances. So there's companies like Experian, TransUnion, Equifax that get information reported to them by your mortgage lender, by your credit card companies, by your auto lender that says how timely you pay your payments and they kind of grade you based on that. So if everything's paid on time, of course, you're going to have great credit. Doug stated it's important to check your credit. Well, why is that? Your credit report may not be telling you an accurate story. Everybody should be checking their credit. You can get a free copy of your credit report once a year from the bureaus. And sometimes there's just information that people are completely taken by surprise. And the last thing you want to do is find that out right when you're ready to make a big purchase, such as a mortgage. Number three, quick. Do you remember what the correct number of credit cards to carry? Let's refresh our memory with Doug's advice. I personally have five. To me, that's normally too many, but I have a specific credit card I carry because of the point factor I get on it that I don't want to give up. So that's my primary use credit card. But at the same time, I have another credit card I've had for 
15 plus years, you don't want to get rid of a credit card like that because part of your score is based on the longevity of your credit too. Although he personally has five, he stated that three is the ideal number. Number four, how many points does an inquiry take off your credit score? Well, that may depend on how many cards you own and some other variables unique to your situation. Let's see what Doug had to say. So this one's going to be a a little bit of a loaded question again. So Mm -hmm. if you've got somebody that's brand new credit profile with a car loan and that's their entire profile, a new inquiry is going to bring on a second debt. Hopefully if they get approved, that's now 50% of their profile. Whereas opposed to your friend that has 28 credit cards already and other, you know, potential house loan and potentially a car loan, that's like one thirtieth of their profile. So they're going to see a little bit different hit and it's going to be probably just a 15 plus point hit for the person that had one card, maybe a five to eight point hit for the person that had an extensive credit profile. Number five, Doug had surprising advice for those of you wanting to clean up your credit and boost your score. What should you do if you've had a card a long time, but you never use it? First of all, never, ever close accounts whenever you're trying to boost your score. That's the first mistake everybody does. They think, I'm going to clean up my credit, make my profile look nice and neat. And you take your friend that had 28 credit cards and you start closing off a bunch of cards. And they make the mistake of, well, I never used this one. I never used that one. And they happen to be 20-year seasoned accounts. That's going to affect your score. Uh, One of my favorite parts in the show when I can give you all a community update. Well, there are so many awesome and amazing things that are happening behind the scenes. It's pretty much just too hard for me to contain my excitement. And I really want to share it with all of you just a bit early. A few weeks ago, I hinted at a book is in the works and I'll tell you the outline is done and I am well into the main copy of the book. This thing is going to be so different than what is currently out there on the market I really can't wait to get it into all of your hands. Stay tuned for the release date, but I'm shooting for mid-October between you and I. There will be a few things that are shifting around in our community group on Facebook. We will be migrating our group into another group of ours called Physician Finance by Financial Residency. So please make sure that you click the join button and hop on over where it's really going off in that group. According to Facebook, over 90% of our members are active within the last 30 days. It's all super fun stuff. If you haven't joined us yet, come join us at financialresidency.com slash community. The last little thing I want to leave you is with this. I've been getting requests for some type of maybe group coaching, let's call it, with specifics to financial planning for physicians. And let's just say that something is in the works to fill this void as we currently have loads of free content. And of course, I do work one-on-one with physicians all over the country at Physician Wealth Services. But if you think you'd be interested in maybe some type of group work, please stay tuned. It's not winter, but financial fellowship is coming. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I know. I had to throw in a gamer reference in there somewhere. Hey everyone, listen up real quick. As your host of the Financial Residency Podcast, I'm not an attorney, a psychic, nor do I play one on TV. That'd be kind of cool though. I am glad you're here to learn and get excited about your finances. There's no purchase necessary to win, but you do need to know that your money decisions should be talked through with someone knowledgeable about your financial situation. And that person isn't me unless you're already a client. 
then that's a totally different story. So consult an attorney, a CPA, or heck, reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner to help you get on your feet the right way. Next week, we're going to have a really fun show with my friend and special guest, Bethany Bayless. Definitely one you won't want to miss. Have a great week. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.